Section 29 of the South American Republics, Volume 2, by Thomas Cleland Dawson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Piotr Nater. Part 6. Colombia. Chapter 4. Modern Colombia. After Bolivar's departure for Peru, a period of relative quiet ensued. Nevertheless, ambitious local politicians constantly intrigued against Santander, who in his turn was suspected of encouraging federalist agitation in the hope of overthrowing Bolivar. The United States and England recognized the independence of Colombia shortly after the expulsion of the Spaniards, but foreign troubles arose when the new republic faced the question of paying the immense debt contracted by Bolivar's agents in recruiting and equipping the mercenary troops and buying ships, artillery, and ammunition. This debt had been enormously swollen by the dishonesty of some Colombian commissioners, and by the greed of money-lenders who insisted on receiving bonds for double the amount they had really advanced. The temptation to borrow more, when it was refunded, was too great to be resisted, and Colombia soon saw herself burdened with foreign obligations, amounting to nearly seven million sterling. All the revenues were insufficient to pay interest on this sum, a truly stupendous one for so poor a country. The payments fell into arrears, and though the debt has been scaled down repeatedly, interest has rarely been paid. At the very beginning of her independent existence, Colombia's credit was ruined, and the three countries into which she was shortly divided have remained burdened to this day with the debts then contracted, their finances disorganized, they attempted operations blighted by the reputation of bankruptcy, and their diplomatic relations hampered by the clamors of bondholders. Santander's administration was further embarrassed by Bolivar's demands for money and troops with which to pursue his conquests in Peru and Bolivia, and still graver difficulties soon arose. Paez, left in command of the army in Venezuela, became involved in disputes with the authorities of the Venezuelan cities and with the ministers at Bogotá, all of whom he despised as mere civilians or as foreigners who had no right to interfere. Finally, in 1826, the central government formally deprived him of his position and summoned him to Bogotá, but a revolution which promptly broke out in Caracas made him dictator. The news brought Bolivar back from Lima, where for two years he had reigned as absolute monarch, leading the life of a voluptuous eastern prince. For the next four years the liberator struggled in vain to repress the rising tide of federalism and radicalism in Venezuela and New Granada. The republican theorists could not forget that he had re-established the convents, placed the schools under priestly control, abrogated government contracts for personal reasons, introduced aristocratic decorations, and schemed for a hereditary senate and a life tenure of the executive nor that his influence had stopped the Cucuta Convention in the path of political reform, prevented the abolition of slavery and capital punishment, and retained the connection of church and state, and the exemption of the army and clergy from civil jurisdiction. Santander was more liberal and a better practical politician. He had shown much ability during the liberator's absence, and risen to be the head of a considerable party. Bolivar succeeded in temporarily crushing some of the opposition in Venezuela and in cajoling Paez, and on his return to Bogotá he made a feint of resigning the presidency. Congress, however, was still under his spell and re-elected him. 
He then made an attempt to secure legal sanctions for his system by summoning another constituent convention. But news had come of Peru's and Bolivia's defection, and the agitation of the transcendental liberals, the universal desire for local self-government, and the ambitions of a hundred intriguers for high office proved too much for him. A majority of the convention which met at Ocana in 1828 were partisans of Santander, and opposed Bolivar's proposal, although the liberator at the head of 3,000 soldiers watched the proceedings. Though he did his best to intimidate the majority, he shrank from frankly playing the role of a Cromwell, and contented himself with ordering his supporters to withdraw, leaving the convention without a quorum. It dissolved, and the country trembled on the verge of disintegration. His friends called an assembly, which obediently proclaimed him dictator. The liberator accepted, and deprived Santander of the vice-presidency. The press was muzzled, protesters banished, and military rule established. Some fiery young republicans, determined to emulate the example of Brutus, struck down the palace guards at midnight, and rushed into the house to kill the dictator. But his mistress, Manuela Saenz, awakened by the noise, directed him to a window. He dropped a few feet to the pavement, and ran and hid himself under a bridge, while the woman, in her night clothes, met the assassins on the stairs, and told them they could enter only over her dead body. They pushed her aside with their bloody hands, only to find the quarry escaped. The next day Bolivar returned to the palace, and his spies soon hunted down the criminals. Santander, suspected of knowing of the plot, went into banishment, and for the moment civil war was averted. But the incident did not revive Bolivar's waning popularity. News came in 1829 that Paez had again assumed the dictatorship of Venezuela. This was fatal to Bolivar's hopes. With New Granada in a ferment behind him, he could not expect to conquer Paez and the formidable Llaneros. He made a half-hearted attempt to raise an army, but recoiled before the insuperable difficulties. Again he resigned the presidency, protesting that he was ready to sacrifice all personal ambition to secure the integrity of the Colombian Union and the establishment of a strong and ordered government. Again he was re-elected, but meanwhile civil war was raging in Ecuador, where his own troops disavowed his authority. Rebellion also broke out in Pasto, and Peru intervened in Ecuador and sent a fleet to capture Guayaquil and an army to invade Cuenca. Bolivar exhausted his last resources in dispatching troops to meet the Peruvian onslaught, but the principal result of the war was to put General Flores in a position to make himself independent dictator of Ecuador. Despairing of longer maintaining himself, but loath to give up his ever-cherished idea of union, the liberator entered into negotiations with European diplomats to appoint a prince of a reigning family as king of Colombia. But the idea was impracticable. There was no place for a monarch, either native-born or foreign, on the Granadan highlands, and Venezuela had already virtually separated. Although a rebellion in Antioquia, headed by his old companion in arms, General Cordoba, failed in the fall of 1829, at the end of the year word came that Venezuela had formally declared her independence and had pronounced a sentence of perpetual banishment against the liberator. This was the last straw, and Bolivar made no further resistance to his fate, 
but summoned a Congress and retired to his country house penniless, sick, and heart broken. All his vast estates had been sacrificed to the cause of independence, the hardships of his innumerable marches over the cold mountain roads had broken his health, and his mode of life during the intervals of peace had not tended to restore it. Although only forty-seven, he was a dying man. Still he clung to his hopes of vindication and re-election, but seeing that even the bulk of his own friends opposed, he at last sent in a formal resignation. He lived only a few months after a Congress had elected Mosquera president. Though Bolivar's overthrow was a triumph for the Federalists and Red Republicans, Congress shrank from going too far and installed a wealthy aristocrat as president. However, his feeble administration was soon driven from power by the revolt of General Urdaneta, who made use of Bolivar's name as a rallying cry, but who in fact was actuated alone by personal ambition. The Federalists and anti-Bolivarists did not leave him long in possession, and in May 1831 he was expelled in his turn. Obando and Lopez, both bitter enemies of the Liberator during his lifetime, and the latter suspected of complicity in the cowardly murder of the great Marshal Sucre, came to the head of affairs. New Granada's intestine troubles made her too weak to attempt the coercion of Venezuela and Ecuador, so their independence was recognized, and the Colombian Republic ceased to exist. A Federalist constitution for New Granada was framed in 1832, and shortly afterwards Santander became the first legal president. Unquestionably the strongest man in the nation, a good administrator and a shrewd politician, he was helpless to check the tendency toward disintegration, though he reduced Bolivar's army of 20,000 to less than one-half and did much to establish civil administration. His energy in enforcing order earned him the title of the quote-unquote man of laws, and many Granadans regard him as the real founder of their nationality. Marquez, who succeeded to the presidency in 1837, was not radical enough to suit the advanced Federalists and Republicans, although the first serious rebellion which broke out against him was caused by his suppression of convents in reactionary and catholic pasto at the same time obando was intriguing against the government and many of the provincial governors aided the plots when summoned to trial obando fled to the wilds of papayan and pasto and civil war raged through eighteen thirty nine and eighteen forty in this latter year, Panama successfully revolted, maintaining its independence until 1842. Thomas Mosquera, the Minister of War, with the help of his son-in-law, General Herran, eventually triumphed over the rebels. In 1841, the latter became president and set vigorously to work to strengthen the power of the central government. By this time, all the people who took any interest in politics had divided into two parties. The liberals insisted on universal suffrage, the separation of church and state, the granting the provinces the fullest autonomy, the division of the greater portion of the national revenue among the provincial governments, and even opposed the theoretical right of any government to impose its will on the individual citizen. The conservatives believed in respecting the clergy, in continuing the old system of education under priestly control, and resisted any further emasculation of the national government. Erran recalled the Jesuits, 
and under his direction a conservative convention framed a more centralizing constitution than that of 1832. Bolivar's ashes were delivered to the Venezuelan government with impressive solemnities, and his memory apotheosized as the father of the nation and the apostle of centralization. Erran was succeeded by his father-in-law, Thomas Mosquera. During his administration, which lasted until 1849, steam navigation was introduced on the Magdalena, the Panama Railway was begun, the finances were brought into some sort of order, the army was further reduced, and the post-office system was improved. The liberals and federalists were constantly becoming more powerful and more discontented. Disturbances broke out from time to time, and when Mosquera's term expired, the attempt to elect a successor in an orderly and constitutional manner utterly failed. Riots and bloodshed followed, and it was officially announced that no candidate had received a majority of the popular vote. The duty of making a choice fell upon Congress, and Lopez, a general of the War of Independence who had taken part in the overthrow of Bolivar, was installed. This meant a resumption of the march towards complete decentralization, temporarily checked during Erran's and Mosquera's administrations. The constitution was reformed so as to reduce the power of the national executive and guarantee greater privileges to the provinces. The latter was divided and subdivided to suit the exigencies of local politicians until their number reached thirty-five. Lopez had been a revolutionist himself, and did not know when he might be one again, and his abolishment of the death penalty for the political crimes met with the hearty approval of the large number of Granadan politicians who were in the same case. The central government transferred a large part of its revenues to the provinces, and gave up to them the control of judicial administration, of education, and of transportation. The tide of liberal legislation also swept over the privileges of the clergy. Laws were voted suppressing the tithes, giving the nomination of parish priests to the civil authorities, taking control of education out of their hands, separating church and state, and establishing civil marriages. But it was easier to pass such laws than to enforce their observance by the Granadans. The clergy were enormously powerful among the common people and the conservative aristocrats. The banishment of the archbishop and several suffragans roused the conservatives. Politics became the principal preoccupation of the educated classes. Hardly a village in the country but had its political club, and more than a hundred party newspapers, besides innumerable pamphlets, thundered against their opponents. The conservative revolution broke out in 1851, beginning in Pasto, and immediately spreading over the whole western half of the republic and even to the eastern plateau antioquia was the stronghold of the clericals and there they gathered a force of a thousand men which was beaten at rio negro on the tenth of september eighteen fifty one while the insurgent bands in dozen other provinces were reduced in detail although the liberal government was thus triumphant in the field the danger had been too great and was still too menacing to make it safe to maintain an uncompromising attitude on the religious question. Lopez procured the election of Obando, another political general of the same type and opinions as himself, as his successor in the presidency. The new president's first act was to summon a convention which abolished the last traces of Erran's moderately centralizing constitution, 
and depriving the executive of the power of naming provincial governors. Obando gave satisfaction to no one, and in 1854 General Melo, commander of the cavalry in Bogotá, incited the garrison and working men of that city to join him in an insurrection. However, the chiefs of the conservative party would have none of him. The recent concessions to the clergy had removed the strongest motives for rousing fanaticism to arms, and the clericals declared in his favor in only a few provinces. The property-holding and educated classes were practically unanimous against him. Mosquera and Erran, the most powerful men in New Granada, and the historical chiefs of the moderate conservatives had modified their views to suit the exigencies of the situation and become in effect moderate liberals it was mosquera himself who led the provincial militia against bogota and overcome the dictator after much bloody street fighting the unhappy country tired of continual internecine disorder and exhausted by the harrying civil wars rested willingly for two years under the compromise administration of mayarino in which representatives of both parties and most of the principal factions had a voice as a matter of fact the federal government had almost ceased to exercise the greatly reduced functions which nominally remained to it the executive had only the shadow of a control over the provinces its revenues sank to well nigh nothing its army was reduced to eight hundred men the very name of the country was changed from the republic of new granada to the granadine confederation and the organization of powerful and independent federal departments was begun foreshadowing the abolition of the old provincial system in eighteen fifty seven three candidates had presented themselves ospina representing the clerical conservatives murillo the advanced liberals and mosquera the moderates suffrage had been made universal and under the conditions necessarily prevailing among the population almost entirely illiterate and used for centuries to monarchical and military government a satisfactory election was impossible on the face of the returns ospina received a plurality but the radicals were able to force the adoption of a new federal constitution in eighteen fifty nine which abolished the old provinces however the new system had not the sympathy of the conservative and clerical president he tried to usurp control of the elections the liberals accused him of acting unconstitutionally insurrections broke out in various parts of the country and the confusion became worse confounded in the state of bolivar the liberal insurrectionists triumphed while in santander the conservatives themselves started a revolution which ospina only succeeded in suppressing by the bloody battle of oratorio meanwhile mosquera had become governor of cauca and when the conservatives of that state tried to expel him he beat them and took advantage of his victory to declare himself independent of ospina the latter advanced but mosquera defeated him and invaded the upper magdalena gaining the battle of segovia in every state there was an insurrection against ospina and three ex-presidents accompanied the insurgent armies on the surface the civil war appeared to be a mere contest for personal power between mosquera and ospina but the former had ensured a large support by raising the banner of federalism and the latter's triumph would probably have meant a strengthening of the national government 
and certainly a reaction from the radicalism which had gained ground year by year since the fall of bolivar supported by the clericals conservatives and reactionists ospina fought tenaciously and with a fair prospect of success but the federalist armies advanced relentlessly from both north and south and one after another the provinces of the eastern plateaus were wrested from him by bloody and well-contested battles Mojota was finally taken and the president imprisoned but mosquera's opponents kept up the conflict for some time in the state of panama santander and antioquia and it was near the end of eighteen sixty one before the federalists were everywhere triumphant with mosquera at the head of affairs under the title of supreme dictator a congress was summoned whose members were called not deputies representatives or delegates but plenipotentiaries of the sovereign states the congress adopted a new constitution new granada's sixth since eighteen thirty the triumphant liberals expelled the jesuits abolished ecclesiastical entails extinguished the monastic orders confiscated church property decreed the absolute separation of church and state imprisoned the archbishop and secularized the schools suffrage was made nominally universal and the death penalty abolished the name of the country was changed to the united states of columbia and it became little more than a league of nine federal states for the purpose of defence against foreign attack the national government was expressly prohibited from interfering in the affairs of the states even for the preservation of order and a clause of the constitution provided that quote, when one sovereign state of the union shall be at war with another or the citizens of any state shall be at war among themselves the national government is obligated to preserve the strictest neutrality end quote the federal judiciary had no power to decide any constitutional question nor could its decision bind the state authorities the national government was deprived of half its revenue for the benefit of the states and the receipts of the latter equalled the federal income this constitution remained in force for twenty-two years during which civil wars and factional disputes continually racked colombia moreno the clerical dictator of ecuador had aided ospina during the civil war and to punish him mosquera undertook a campaign which resulted in a colombian victory at quasput on the thirtieth of december eighteen sixty three however he desisted from his announced intention of deposing moreno and installing an anti-clerical government in ecuador and granted peace without the imposition of any onerous terms murillo was elected president in eighteen sixty four for the ensuing two years to which short period the term had been reduced the religious question would not down and he found a conservative revolution going on in the state of antioquia it triumphed and murillo prudently recognized the successful insurgents as the legal government he followed this same policy in regard to other revolutions in the states of bolivar magdalena and panama and cautiously refrained from all interventions even when conservative insurrections occurred in the neighborhood of bogota itself or when the clericals of antioquia invaded cauca and defeated the liberals one of the last acts of his administration was to impose on the impoverished federal treasury the settlement of all the forced loans and confiscations made during the three years of terrible civil wars 
Mosquera, who succeeded Murillo in 1866, was not content to remain a mere figurehead, although it was under his leadership that the federal system had been definitely established. He bought ships and artillery without authorization from Congress and claimed the power of intervening by force whenever the legal government of a state was unable to maintain order. This attack on the right of revolution outraged the radical republicans. According to their theory and practice, the federal government was merely an alliance between the peoples of the states, but Mosquera's doctrine would tend to make it an alliance between the state governments, creating a ruling oligarchy whose power might be continued indefinitely. Denounced as the assassin of Colombian liberty, he broke off relations with the liberal majority in Congress, and in 1867 assumed dictatorial powers but the Bogota garrison was suborned by his enemies, and its revolt was followed by his deposition and the substitution of Acosta. The new president renewed Murillo's policy of non-intervention. Colombia had begun to reap a benefit from the increasing foreign demand for tropical products. Exports grew in value, and with them imports and revenue. But expenditures grew faster. The poorer states demanded and received subsidies from the federal treasury. Public buildings and local improvements were planned beyond the nation's ability to pay, and a swarm of employees and pensioners battened on the public revenues. Under the concession of 1850, the Panama Railway had agreed to pay 3% of its net revenue to the government, and the receipts from this source amounted to $14,000 a year. Colombia had stipulated for the right to purchase the road in 1870 for the ridiculously low price of $5 million, but Acosta's administration had no money to invest and was greedy for ready cash, so the franchise was extended until 1966 for $1 million down and an annual subsidy of a quarter of a million. In 1887, under the pressure of poverty, the installments until 1908 were alienated. Under Gutierrez's administration, 1868 to 1869, when the governor of Cundinamarca gathered troops and assumed a dictatorship, the president deposed him. Even a liberal administration found it impracticable to carry out the theory of non-intervention. An attempt was now made to secure the nation's creditors by authorizing the hypothecation of specific revenue, a measure which left the administration insufficient means to meet ordinary running expenses. Under Salgar, 1870-1872, the acknowledged deficits amounted to 50% of the total revenue. The increasing revenues had proven a curse instead of a blessing, for the demands of the states and officials were insatiable, and the sums spent in subsidies and internal improvements grew beyond all reason. Meantime, the most extreme and unrestrained liberalism dominated the politics of the country. Congress passed a formal vote of condolence for the death of López, Paraguay's unspeakable tyrant, who had just succumbed to Brazil and Argentina after having devoted to destruction nine-tenths of his people. All honorary and useless military titles and employments were abolished, and the law on that subject contains the following curious provision, quote, In naming the eight generals spoken of by the Constitution, from whom must be chosen the commander-in-chief of the army, 
all Columbians over twenty one shall be considered as generals of the Republic. Murillo was elected for a second term in 1872, and at once devoted himself, and with considerable success, to the reorganization and regulation of the finances. The law of 1868, which had hypothecated the revenues to meet the charges of the public debt, was repealed, and the foreign bonds were scaled down to less than one-third their face. By such measures the President succeeded in paying the government employees and taking care of pressing home necessities, and even showed a nominal surplus at the end of his term. During the administration of Santiago Pérez, 1874-1876, to 1876, the first mutterings of the terrible storm of civil war soon to burst over the country were heard. The state of Panama defied his authority and imprisoned his officers, but he applied conscientiously the constitutional doctrine of non-intervention and disavowed a general who on his own responsibility had deposed the governor. The governor of the state of Magdalena took possession of the custom houses at the mouth of the river, and the troops of the state of Bolivar attacked federal detachments passing along the Magdalena, a river which is interstate, and whose navigation was free by the terms of the constitution. The popular election of 1879 was so disturbed that Congress assumed the power of selecting a president, and Parra was installed the following spring. An internecine conflict broke out in Cauca. The president started to intervene, and the states of Antioquia and Tolima declared war against him. Although guerrilla bands in Cundinamarca, Boyacá, and Santander menaced the government's rear, 25,000 recruits were raised and sent against the rebelling states. Antioquia was beaten at Chancos and Garrapata, and the rebels of central Colombia at La Don Juana, in battles where the largest numbers of soldiers ever gathered on Colombian soil were engaged. Peace was followed by a general amnesty, because the victorious liberals dared not proceed to extremities against their adversaries. Trujillo was installed as president without opposition, and the harried country recovered somewhat from the exertions and disasters of the terrible year of 1876. The finances were, however, in terrible disorder. Expenses amounted to enormous figures. The deficits became greater than the total revenues. Interest on the public debt, which had been regularly kept up since 1873, was indefinitely suspended. Disturbances soon began to break out again, and the National Guard deposed the governors of Cauca and Magdalena. The president showed an inclination towards centralization. He formed alliances with state governors, encouraged them to prolong their terms, and systematically fostered divisions in the Liberal Party. Trujillo was succeeded by Núñez, nominally a liberal, but who at heart had also sickened of the federalist system and was looking for an opportunity to strengthen presidential prerogatives. The constitution stood during his first term and those of his two successors, but when he was re-elected in 1884, the policy which he followed soon caused him to be denounced by the liberals as a traitor to the constitution. The failure of a liberal insurrection in 1885 was followed by a complete unitarian and clerical reaction. In 1886 a new constitution was adopted, which substituted a consolidated republic for the loose confederation. 
the country's name was changed from the United States of Columbia to Republic of Columbia, in order to express the dominating principle of the new regime. The sovereignty of the individual states was expressly denied in the document, and the two most refractory ones, Panama and Cundinamarca, temporarily reduced to territorial dependencies. The governors were named from Bogotá instead of being elected, and the right of federal intervention reaffirmed. Suffrage was limited by an educational and property qualification. The clergy were admitted to participation in politics. The Roman Catholic was declared to be the national religion, although individual freedom of worship was permitted. The presidential term was extended to six years, and an attempt was made to ensure judicial independence by a life tenure. Under this constitution there was, for a long time, less disorder. In Colombia political hatreds are, however, incredibly virulent and persistent, because party differences are fundamental and irreconcilable. The clericals regard their opponents as pestilent enemies of religion and order, and the liberals anatomize the ruling party as a reactionary, corrupt, and benighted oligarchy. The exiled liberals have made repeated efforts to regain power, and the administrations have not been able to avoid a constantly mounting national expenditure and the continuation of deficits and repudiation. In 1899, a formidable insurrection, aided from Venezuela, broke out, President San Clemente was imprisoned, and in 1900, Vice-President Marroquin assumed the executive functions. This terrible civil war ended only in November 1902, when the insurgents surrendered their fleet and stores. President Marroquin and the conservative government seem now firmly established, backed as they are by the tremendous influence of the church among the masses. The people are returning to their usual avocations, though business has been demoralized by the stupendous deprecation of the paper currency. The vast expenditures of the French Canal Company boomed Panama, but the resulting prosperity was confined to the isthmus. The Bogota government hoped for a great increase of income when the canal should be completed, and the abandonment of the enterprise was a disappointment. The principal subject of public preoccupation during 1903 was the negotiation with the United States concerning the permission desired by the latter to continue the work. Colombia proper has its outlets down the Magdalena to the Caribbean, and therefore has no greater special commercial interest in the building of a canal than Venezuela, Guyana, and Cuba. But the Colombians of the continent regard the possession of the isolated Isthmian region as their most valuable national birthright, and believe that this invaluable strategic position should be used so as to obtain the utmost possible advantages for the Bogota government, as well as for the people of Panama. The revenue from the Panama Railway had been one of the important sources of government income, and the ruling political classes considered that they were entailed to have this income largely increased if a canal was built. The special congress summoned to consider the treaty already signed by the executive failed to ratify the agreement and adjourned after empowering the president to try and negotiate a new one which would give colombia a larger bonus and revenue but the rejection of the treaty was followed by a declaration of independence on the part of the people of panama 
who believed that the United States would pay no larger sum than that already agreed upon, and who saw their own interests being sacrificed for the sake of a far distant interior region with which they had few commercial ties, and whence invasion and coercion need not be feared, because of the lack of practicable routes of communication. The United States and other powers promptly recognized the new nation, which at once made a canal treaty similar to that rejected by the Bogota Congress. At Bogota, the first impression was one of profound dismay. The executive offered to declare martial law, suspend the constitution, and ratify the rejected treaty in spite of the Senate. General Reyes, the foremost living Colombian, immediately departed for Panama as a special envoy to endeavor to persuade the people there to return to their allegiance, but his overtures were rejected, and he went to Washington on the hopeless errand of inducing the United States government temporarily to abandon its policy of forbidding fighting on the Isthmus, so that Colombia might reduce the people of Panama to obedience. Meanwhile, many Colombians blamed the Marroquin administration for the irreparable loss of Panama and ten million badly needed dollars. Some popular demonstrations occurred, and the hot-headed demanded that war be declared against the United States, and an army marched across the Atrato swamps to attack Panama from the land. But the financial and topographical difficulties were so evidently insurmountable that the war talk soon died down, and demonstrations against the government ceased, and most elements seem to have acquiesced in the election of General Reyes to the presidential term which begins in 1904. It will be under his able guidance that Colombia will start on the tedious road leading to internal peace and regeneration, to financial rehabilitation, and to the reconcilement of those fierce factions whose wars have drenched their country's soil with blood for so many decades. End of section 29